Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of, yet. <laughs> Welcome, boils and ghouls. It's time for your good old Uncle Crispy to take you on another dark ride. Victoria? Um, hello, Uncle. What do you think you're doing, dear girl? Well... It's Women in Horror Month. I thought you could use a bit of a female touch to celebrate. What an absolutely splendid idea! Did you have any in mind? As a matter of fact, I do. Well, go on, girl. Let's hear your best librarian intro. (laughs) All right, kiddies. Hold on to yourselves. It's going to be a dark ride. A dark train ride, in fact. This dark tale, written by Cynthia Lohman, one of the creators of a certain show called The Lift, is called Train Man. Told by Graham Rowat, Sarah Ruth Thomas, and Daniel Wojtek, with a custom score by Nico Batiz. Well done! I think you need to work on the laugh a little, though. How's this? <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on it. <laughs> Train Man by Cynthia Lohman. The low vibration is quiet, not even yet a rumble when the fear takes hold. The deep hum grows coming closer. She wants to be brave, tells herself it's just a train, but before the horn sounds at the crossing a half mile away, she pulls the covers over her head. Nothing exposed. Her quickened exhalations build heat and humidity in the blanketed haven to the point where she thinks she can't breathe, but the train's engine is now a churning growl. It's a 10.30, with so many engines to pull a long line of freight cars that bump, bump on the tracks until coming to a stop at the signal behind the house. This is the train he likes best. Rissa pulls away from the frenzy of kisses and clothing removal and looks at nothing, listening. You live by train tracks? Yeah, why? Lewis asks. She turns her ear toward a window that lacks curtains or blinds. It's coming. She whispers, then scoots down the bed, under the sheet. Whoa, Lewis says. Though stopping is not what he wants. Alrighty then. Rissa clenches the sheet in her hands and tucks it behind her head, then pulls her feet up, making herself small. Whoa, Lewis says again, the surprise laced with concern this time. What's wrong? He lifts the sheet, bringing fresh air, but the train hasn't passed yet. Rissa rolls, still gripping the sheet, so it wraps around her. Whoa! This time, frustration is apparent. If you aren't ready, just say so, jeez. The rumble of the train recedes, only a short one. 
I'm sorry. Rissa struggles to unwrap her head. The sheet pulls her long blonde hair with it, so she has some cover from Lewis's almost scowl. It's stupid, she says, pushing her lips out. He softens his expression and brushes her hair back in a couple of swipes. What's wrong? She looks down to his bare chest. It's so stupid. You'll think I'm stupid. He runs his fingers along her jaw, stopping at her chin to turn her face up. It's okay. You're not stupid. Looking in his eyes a moment, she drops her gaze to his mouth. It's from when I was a kid. The train? His hand withdraws, and he's more concerned. She hesitates before nodding, keeping the pout in place, like the child she used to be. I thought bad things happened when the trains came. I had these nightmares. What kind of nightmares? He sounds like a detective now. Interested. Unsympathetic. The kind where you think you're awake. And they made you afraid of trains? The train man dragged bags of body parts through the house at night when the trains came. She shivers and rubs her arm. I don't really want to talk about it. The train man. Lewis says it like he's getting a feel for it. I have an overactive imagination. She gives Lewis a sly smile, but he looks through her, thinking, Did you ever tell anyone about your nightmares? My mom didn't want to hear about them. She thought they were gross. It was just me and her in a crummy house on Vista. It wasn't easy on either of us, especially her. So why would I bother her with my sick dreams? Her voice quivers, and Lewis focuses on her. But it still affects you. It seems like a lot more than bad dreams. I always thought they were more, but I was a kid. She shrugs and sits up. I think I better go. No, I'm sorry. Please stay. He runs a finger down her arm. We don't have to do anything. Talking about this train stuff, and the trains, I just need to go. She finds her shirt from the floor and slips it over her head. Another time. Maybe my place? She flashes a smile, waves, and disappears down the hall. Lewis texts her on the way home, apologizing again and asking to see her. Rissa doesn't answer. The next day, he texts her again, asking if they can meet for dinner. Then a follow-up. She also gets an email. The day after that, she gets a message asking if she's okay, one asking if she will see him again, another saying how much he likes her, one asking if he should stop, then a final one saying he will stop. The third day goes by quietly for Rissa until a flurry of text messages come in, then a phone call with a voice message, emails, more messages, more phone calls. She doesn't bother to look. The next morning, Rissa stands in line at the coffee shop, like she does every morning before work, when she feels someone too close behind her and the damp, hot breath on the back of her head, before she hears Lewis's voice. Why haven't you returned my messages? Did you see what happened? He asks in a low voice, but people are still looking. It's her turn in line, and the barista asks protectively, You okay, Rissa? She nods and smiles, orders her usual, pays, and picks it up before breaking her routine and finding a seat in the store. Lewis follows like a child, having the sense to keep quiet until they sit. Lewis leans forward and says in a low voice, They found bones in a yard on Vista Street. Why do I need to know this? She asks. I spent years trying to get over this fear. Live a normal life? He sits back in the chair, hard enough to push a huff from his lungs. His mouth open just enough not to be a gape. Rissa drinks her thick, black espresso, 
Her eyes, almost the same color, fixed on him. Don't you feel vindicated? I would feel better if you were here because you liked me. How do you even know that's the right house? His hands come up from under the table, so he has something to focus on other than her stare. I do like you. Didn't you read anything I sent? Unconvinced, Rissa asks again. Why do you assume these bones were found where I lived? Mouth open again before he composes himself, he says. Seems a bit too coincidental, don't you think? Have the police talked to you? She shakes her head. I don't want to talk to them either. Lewis sighs. Good. Rissa scrunches her eyebrows. Good? Then it's not just me, he says, and reaches across the table to brush his fingers across her hand, holding her cup. His voice turns soft and buttery. I do like you, Rissa. She takes a drink of her espresso, leaving his hand alone on the table. I have to go to work. I'm late. Despite her words, she is casual, pushing her chair neatly under the table. Lewis moves to her side and runs a hand along the back of her arm. Work near here? No, I take the bus. But the light rail is... His voice trails off as her lips disappear in a line. Oh. How about I drive you? She adjusts the straps of her large bag on her shoulder. I guess. Can I get that for you? He indicates the bag. With a quick turn, she puts herself between the two. I'm good. Once in the car with seatbelts clicked, Lewis doesn't ask Rissa where she works and heads in the direction the car is already headed. You'll have to turn around, Rissa says. Lewis keeps driving, eyes on the road in front of him. As if it's his lucky day, the traffic lights are all magically green. Pedestrians don't step out in front of him. Other drivers don't cut him off. He's cruising along with a lovely lady who is gripping the bag in her lap. Louder this time, she says, Lewis, my work is back that way. She jerks a thumb over her shoulder, which seems to bring him out of his trance. He glances at her. Oh, sorry. Rissa lets out a breath as he clicks his left turn signal. His turn makes her bag slide across her lap and knock against the door. The clunks of thick metal make Lewis look at the oversized satchel and ask, What is it you do again? Rissa smirks. I'm a secretary. She pats her bag, resulting in another heavy clink. But I volunteer at the homeless shelter sometimes, doing various maintenance. Lewis gives an unimpressed nod and changes lanes, turning right at the next block, heading away from the city. Lewis? Rissa says in an even voice, but her quickened breath and grip on the door betray her nerves. I have a surprise, he says with a playful lightness. Rissa slips a hand into an exterior pocket of her bag and pulls out her cell phone. I need to call work. Lewis's hand is over hers in an instant, squeezing it tightly around the phone. Don't, he says in that silky sweet voice. Be bad with me today. He gives her hand a tighter pulse before letting go and sliding his fingers under her bag to rest on her thigh. Her legs clamp together and she pulls the straps of her bag tight to her chest. You can call if you want, he says, returning his grip to the steering wheel and slowing the car. Maybe you're not ready. I'll take you back to your safe chased office life and let the police dig up your traumatic childhood. He stops in the road, or you can escape with me and overcome things for good. With a deep breath, Rissa puts the phone back and lets the bag drop to the floor between her feet. I'm ready. The car roars again, and Rissa is pinned back to her seat as Lewis heads away from the city. A few turns and fifteen minutes later, they pull into a dirt driveway leading up to a small, square house with graying white paint. Rissa steps into a yard of ankle-high weeds. Romantic. 
You didn't come for romance. Lewis slips a hand around her waist and pulls her tight against him to go to the front door, which is unlocked. He guides her into a dim front room, only slants of sunlight filtering through closed blinds. Cigarette smoke and dust swirl through the dim planes of light. It takes a moment after the door is closed to adjust to the darkened, wood-paneled room. Sparsely furnished with a boxy, dark green sofa, a gold-striped velour chair, and the source of the smoke opposite Rissa in a questionably colored chair next to the doorway to the kitchen. The man's raspy voice, enveloped in smoke, comes from thin, wrinkled lips. It's been a long time. An involuntary cough escapes from Rissa. <coughs> Can you believe the luck? Lewis says. Running into her on some dating site? The old man stubs his cigarette in a vintage, standalone ashtray. You did good, son. Rissa looks at Lewis, who wears a grin ready to break his face in two. I don't think... Good, Lewis says and puts a hand on her shoulder. Don't think. He pushes her into the chair, where she lands with a muffled clatter from her bag that shifts in such a way that her phone thunks to the floor. Lewis swipes it like a cat before Rissa can retrieve it. That made it easy, he says. The old man lights another cigarette. Wisps of smoke that match the few remaining bits of hair on his head trail up from his mouth as he speaks. You could have made a lot of trouble for me, Rissa. But my good boy Lewis here found you. What are you talking about? Rissa asks, less fearful than the situation demands. Father and son laugh, a dichotomy of hearty and weak mirth. Your nightmares were real, Lewis says, wriggling fingers at her. Rissa studies the withered man and says, You. I'm your train man, he says, spreading his arms out as if presenting himself. And I appreciate you keeping my secret for me all these years. And the nickname. He winks, and she reacts as if slapped, looking at the flattened shag carpet at her feet. They found bones in a yard on Vista Street. I can't believe you didn't go straight to the cops, Lewis says, amused. Rissa lifts her gaze to him. I told you. I'm looking to get over my past. I'm not talking to anyone, so you should just let me be. A dry clucking of the train man's tongue drew both of their attention. I always did like you. But those spoons... Well, they're causing some problems. I'll bet. Rissa leans back in the chair and puts her hands to her chin, clutching the straps of her bag. Thing is, he says, those bones aren't from me. Lewis's mouth drops open, but Rissa almost sneers. Looks like you weren't the only one using trains for cover. She says, and receives a backhand from <laughs> Lewis. Shut up, he yells, then turns to his father. If those weren't from you, what do you need her for? I'd rather guarantee I don't spend my last few months in jail. And those bones could do that. She knows what I did. He nods at Rissa, who is rubbing her face and glaring at the two men. Doesn't matter that I was smart and dropped my body parts into the tank cars full of acid. Someone else wasn't. And she's the only one who can put it on me. He jabs his cigarette at her. Now that you're all grown up, people will believe you. And I won't be able to convince your mommy. You're just a kid who has bad dreams. Rissa lets out a short bark of a laugh. <laughs> you two have it all wrong. She reaches into her bag and stands, 
but Lewis reacts before she's upright and pushes her back in her seat, holding her down by both shoulders. Desperate words from a desperate woman, he says, his face inches from hers. How about I give you what you came here for before I give you to Dad to finish you off? I'll get what I came for. Rissa smiles and cocks her head. It wasn't luck that brought us together. It was me. Before Lewis can back away, Rissa grabs him by the back of the neck. A knife pierces the side of her bag and slides between Lewis's ribs into his heart. She slips out from under him, removing the knife from both him and the bag to let him fall face first into the chair. Another sheathed knife, a bone saw, and handles of other tools spill out of her satchel as it hits the floor. Without a moment of grief, the train man lurches out of his chair toward the kitchen, but Rissa hurls the knife at his back, catching him in the right shoulder blade. He stumbles forward, splaying onto the counter and reaching wildly with his left hand toward the knife handle. His vain attempts end when Rissa grips the handle. She wiggles it back and forth to pull it from the bone. He screams and grabs at the pencil cup at the end of the counter, but only succeeds in sending them clattering to the floor before Rissa flips him like a pancake. Blood smears across the gold-flecked laminate counter as he tries to wriggle free, but he's old and weak now, not the strong, dark man who lugged cut-up bodies through the house when Rissa was a child. She backs away and lets him crumple to the floor, where he cradles his right arm and cries. You didn't have to kill my boy. I let you live. You were going to kill me. Or he was. She waves the knife toward Lewis's body, then crouches in front of him, putting the tip of her knife under his chin and whispers, You should have killed me then. Instead you ruined me and made me kill all those people. His milky eyes widen. The bones were from you. She reaches toward his head with her free hand, and he cowers. With a light touch, she smooths the gray strands on his head. I've been looking for you, she says in a soothing voice, almost sweet. To make things right for me again. Since I couldn't find you, all those people died. A scoff escapes the train man. Then I found out you had a son, so I found him. The mention of Lewis made the man's lips quiver and his hazy eyes fill again. Killing me won't fix you, he says raspier than before. That must be why I liked you so much. His mouth stretches across his face in an attempt at a smile. She grabs the front of his shirt, pulling him close to her tightened face, and exhales forcefully through clamped teeth, sending a spray of spit on him, then shakes him. No! She yells and slams him back to the floor. You made me this way! You were that way all along. Rissa straddles him on her knees, her face flush, her body shaking. It was you! It was you! She wails as she brings the knife over her head so she can come down with all of her force and rage, the first thrust driving deep into the front of his left shoulder. You ruined me. Again, the knife dives into his body, piercing his right lung. You! Stab. You! Stab. Stab. Over and over. Blood sprays across the cabinets each time she pulls it out of his chest. Blood spills from each wound in a gush from every heartbeat until she stabs that too. Blood pools in the depression created from repeated strikes to his chest until her years of blame are spent.
The ritual begins with sawing the bodies into manageable pieces, putting them into black garbage bags like she found in her closet when she was nine, and cleaning her tools. Then she deviates, loading the bags into Lewis's car instead of storing them in her own closet until she can bury them when the train goes by at night. She showers, puts on the train man's clothes, and gets his work keys from his old job in the train yard. She lights one of his cigarettes, drops it onto the chair where he sat, and waits until the flames spring from the grimy fabric before closing the door and walking to the car. By this time it is dark, and she hears the low vibration. It would be so convenient to dispose of the train man in his own backyard, but she wants her trail of bones to lead to him, the way it was meant to be when she called the police station with her anonymous tip. So she drives away as the windows of the house glow warm with flame. One last trip to her own house should do the trick. She's a little further down the line from the house on Vista, and the train rumbles by, slowing with its high-pitched brakes squealing through the night, sparks flying from the metal until the train cars stop clanging together. A line of black tank cars rests before her. She opens the trunk and pulls out a bag. You were right, she says to it. Killing you didn't fix me, but I did learn something. She walks to the tank car, the train man's keys jingling with every step. When I find somewhere to settle down again, no one will be finding the bones. Bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the Weird Darkness. I'm Darren Marlar, host of Weird Darkness, where I share stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. Recently named one of the best storytellers in podcasting for 2019 by Podcast Business Journal. Whether it's ghosts, cryptids, true crime, or creepypastas, you'll find it all in Weird Darkness. Episodes uploaded seven days a week. Search for Weird Darkness in your favorite podcast app, or listen now at WeirdDarkness.com. <laughs>